This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week Extra. It's a weekly podcast bringing you an in-depth interview you will not hear anywhere else. And this week, I got to say, I loved this conversation. Mm -hmm. Candace Bushnell stopped by. We were expecting, you know, sort of a chat about sex and TV and all of that. It really took a turn, a much more serious turn, candidly, because she really brought her A-game talking about economics, women, sort of the changing nature of power and money here in New York City and elsewhere. Right. We went down memory lane, but it also took some interesting turns. Listen up. So every once in a while, something or someone or both comes along that becomes so much a part of our world, a reference that ties together people, marks an era in our society, and that was definitely the case with Sex in the City. We talk so much about the idea of zeitgeist, mm-hmm. and there are a few people who are more zeitgeisty than Candace Bushnell. <laughs> She's here with us in New York City. She's got a new book out, Is There Still Sex in the City? It's a good-looking cover. You look great on it. You look I, you great. You know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, your some, dogs. I have my dogs. And but I think I should have I, I should have been sort of coming out like at the reader like is there still sex? <laughs> <laughs> so what inspired you to write this book now? Really, the same thing that inspired me to write Sex in the City, and that is that I felt like as a woman I was in uncharted territory. Um, you know, once again being in my 50s and when I was in my 30s and I was writing Sex in the City I was a single woman and um, uh, you know there really weren't supposed to be any single women in their 30s that was you know 20 25 years ago being in single in your 30s was considered what's wrong with you what's wrong with <laughs> you you have baggage why haven't you been able to understand how society works and find you know find somebody um, so that was really the rise of the sex in the city woman you know a woman who said I'm living by different rules for a variety of reasons I haven't found the guy I mean the sex in the city woman is really the woman who in the 80s set out to have it all and do it all how hard take us back there like how hard was it to be a single woman in the city dating trying to make her way make her impact how hard was it it was pretty hard I mean it was pretty hard and I think one of the hardest things for me was really being somebody who I came to the city I didn't go to an Ivy League school, so I didn't have that protection. Um, I didn't really know anybody, and I had no relatives here. So this is a city that really, really thrives on connections, and you are uh, greatly protected by your connections and who you can get to and what circles you move in. And so being somebody without any of those cards makes it, I think, difficult. You really, really have to look out for yourself. And you were young. You were 19? I was 19 when I first moved to the city. And it was pretty, you know, the city was, it was very dangerous. Yeah. I was held up at gunpoint. Um, I think actually somebody, I once, I was in a punk fashion show. It was probably two or three in the morning. I was going home, and I had a face full of pretty extreme makeup. Of course, it was two and three in the morning. I wasn't going home. I was going to visit a friend where you threw down the key. While I was waiting for this person to throw down the key, a car pulled up, 
And there was, uh, you know, they were definitely looking for some of their prostitutes or whatever who right. had clearly run away. And they, one guy got out of the car with a gun and ran towards me. And it was like I got in the first door, but I couldn't get wow. through this into the second door. And and I just turned around and I and I just screamed. And I knew at that point, I was like, there's no way I'm getting in that car. Right. I was like, you're going to have to shoot me before you put a hand on me. And I don't know if it was the extreme makeup, but he looked absolutely startled and shocked and frightened and ran away. So you, that is like nuts. So I, yes, but that kind of thing right. happened all the yeah, time. Yeah. And, but I was really fearless. I mean, right. I really, really was fearless. Well, and you were fearless professionally as well. And, you know, in a pre-social media age, it sounds like what you set out to do was to create the connections, to your point, that I think we take for granted now because everybody is a click or an Instagram or a tweet away. You had to sort of do that the old-fashioned way. But one of the things you did was you fell in with a group of incredibly well-known writers at the time. You talk about sort of yes. the zeitgeisty writers at the time. Freddie Snellis, Jay McInerney, editors, and, and others. What was that all about? It, well, it was so much fun. It was, that was, I, what happened in New York was, when I first moved to New York in 1979, the city was broke. Economics have so much to do with this, and that's something that we never want to talk about. But, um, you know, the we city love to was talk broke. about it all the time. Okay. We we'll talk about and, economics and, and, in the city all and, day long. You know, the economy was bad. And one of the things that I've noticed is that when the economy is bad, feminism rises. Um, and I could be wrong about this, but it's yeah. something that I've observed. And so there was seemed like there was a lot of feminism in New York in the early 80s. I, you probably don't remember this, but there were women on the streets with, you know, that were against pornography, and the pornography was it was pretty brutal then. Right. Um, New York, right? Pornography in New York. Pornography in New York. Forty Second Street. Forty Second Street. Right. It, it was pretty bad, yeah. and you know, then there was that big boom in the 80s, you know, and and so that seemed to start happening in the mid 80s. And and so it was New York was really a, a party city. Mm -hmm. And it was also the thing that everyone has to remember is it was very, very small. I mean, this society of, you know, the movers and shakers or bold face names was probably literally 5000 people max, but probably about 2000 people. And it was really the time of the velvet rope and more and more exclusivity. So it was great to be on the inside of that. And life was incredibly exciting. And, you know, there was no, the gossip was, it was page six which of course everybody wanted to and didn't want to be on. I right. mean, people were so right. afraid of, you know, bad publicity. Now, of course, it's everybody like gets it. I mean, everybody gets it on Twitter in yeah. a sense. So, yeah. um, but then, I, you know, we had the big boom and then we had that 
bust. And we had the trophy wife in the 80s, late 80s. You know, what was it, Black Friday in 1991? 87. 87. But wasn't there another crash in 92? Right. Well, well that the was, tech, yeah. The that, tech bubble. Well, that yeah, was 99. But, like, in 92 oh, was rather, essentially right. when Bush goes out of office, Clinton comes in. That was right. the, the economy that was fairly unsteady. Yes. That led and to that the economy, fe- yes. And so, and that was, a, you know, that recession time was a time when, well, first of all, there were a lot of perks because there were, you know, the big, big companies, they didn't take care of their employees, but they would not pay you very much. Right. That was the time of, you know, everybody was taking a town car and they had these little luxuries that they would give you in order to make up for the fact that you were not paid well, <laughs> paid very badly. Yeah. And then that also seemed like a time of, of feminism. Um, really in in the 90s and it seemed like to me all of those women in the 80s who'd come to New York to make it who hadn't found somebody they were now in their 30s and they had careers and some of them were starting to be successful and they had a very different view of men they really didn't want to settle and they didn't want to accept you know, the things that they supposedly would have accepted in the 80s when they were maybe more desperate to get married. Your That's co- a very long-winded uh, conversation. No, but it's really fascinating. But your column in the New York Observer, from what we understand, is that you were talking about your stories, right, dating in the office, and a couple of editors were like, this would be a great column. Is that correct? Or how did it kind of come to- Correct me, because we want to know, like, kind of how that came to be. Because that was really you know, the foundation I'm actually right. It's so it's so hard. I actually am writing something about that time of when I was writing the column and how I got the column, and I do put the scene in where the character is, you know, talking about her dating life to all of the editors and stuff like that. So, um, yes, I had a lot of stories. Right. And I was full of ideas for stories um, for them. And Susan Morrison was the editor when I was first there. And she sent me out to do a lot of, she wanted me to write about a lot of these different kinds of guys. Like Richard Holbrook was mm-hmm. one of them, mm-hmm. who I hear is an absolutely fascinating man. There's a new biography of him. Yeah. I, I couldn't even get him on the phone. And, you know, and Jeffrey Epstein was also one of these, Mm. you know, kind of questionable, what's going on, how does he get his money? And there were a few other of these types. And it was pretty normal uh, when you interviewed these big business types that you would either get bribed, they would try to bribe you, or would threaten you. Right. So they would kind of bribe you with, I can make your career and threaten you with, you're going to end up in the East River with a cement block around your ankle. Well, let's talk about that for a second, because I feel like those archetypes that, you know, started in the boom of the 80s, they go through the 90s, they manifest differently here in the 2000s. Mm. This is the the audience, the characters that we're so interested in from a Bloomberg and a, and a Business Week perspective. How has that archetype changed? And, and maybe a different way of asking it is, what does Mr. Big look like in 2019? Oh, gosh. Um, that's such a hard question 
for me to answer. Partly because I just saw Chris Noth. <laughs> And so you know literally what he looks like. I know literally what he looks like. I just saw him a couple days ago. He's, he's looking good. He's yeah. looking good. Um, does he still exist? I, well, with, well, with Mr. Me too. Like, like, does Mr. You Big know, that's exist? a very good question. And and um, you know, Mr. Big, we're hoping is not a, a me tour. Right. Um, uh, but does he exist? I, I think. He looks maybe a little bit different, but I have to tell you, I, you know, men with power, they, given the opportunity to behave like men with power, they will. That's generally been my experience. So I don't, I think that men are held more accountable. Um, I think that men do things way, make too many decisions based on ego and emotion. Um, that's still my existence with men. Boy, they've got thin skins. I mean, I have had a lot of problems in business with just trying to talk to men like, look, this is the way it is. You're a you know. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, for and that me, hasn't changed, even I in tend to have a lot of difficulty hmm. working with men in business. Um, it's an ego thing. I, I, you know, I still see it. So much of business is really run on the egos of men. And we're in this mess because of, you know, men are keeping score and counting up how many billions they have. Is that so, also that, because I was thinking about how often we talk about, you know, equality, whether it's in, you know, the C-suite or on corporate boards. Like, it's still held back dramatically. How do you see that? It's hugely held back. I mean, women are, uh, there is no equality. And part of the reason is, I think, socially, how are we brought up to look at men and women? And it's, we've all internalized it so much and I think you know it goes so deep because we really have to look at you know we as human beings we probably raised to live in tribes and and you know small groups we're also raised to be very cooperative and also to specialize and People also want leaders. I mean, that's another thing that's really very interesting about people is so many people want to give up power to somebody else and let somebody else make the decisions. Mm. And I think we see that all across the board. I mean, it takes a lot of effort to go up against, you know, power. And I do think, you know, there are certain things, for instance, like all this grooming that women are encouraged to do. And I do a percentage of it. I do. I do as little as possible because I honestly uh, feel that it's maybe not always the best use of one's time, but society tells us that it is. Well, when you're spending all that time grooming, guess what you're not spending time doing? Making money. And, you know, women are still not raised to go out there and make money. And I am saying to women, now is the time. Well, like, I mean, forget relationships. 
honestly, because that's you are not going to be relying on that in the future. Well, it's interesting, and I feel like, well, a couple of things when you talk about women and money, because I do feel like when women are aggressive about money, they get a label right away, whereas when men are aggressive about money, and I really do believe that, that it's a different perception. He's taking care of his family, it's a good thing, he's ambitious, and I do feel like we still have that playing out. The other thing I feel like when you say women should go out there and make money, you talk about kind of the role of technology in our world now, right? And I mean, we're coming to an, an era where I don't necessarily, I mean, I'm married, but I wouldn't have to get married to have children, right? There exactly. are other ways to do it. Exactly. And that, I mean, to me, one of the things that's so fascinating is what is the future going to look like with all of these dating apps? Because people now feel like they really can't meet somebody unless they're... Swiping right or swiping left? You know, on a dating app. And you played around with this, right? I did. I went on Tinder. I was definitely not going to meet somebody on Tinder. I'm somebody who I'm... I mean, I think... I I do think about it a, a bit, you know, the whole online kind of thing. And we're going to be using it more and more and more. And, you know, my feeling is, are we going to be using it to vote, like, who gets to stay on the island? Yeah. But in a macro sense, like... Yeah. Who gets to come into the United States? Right. Who are we keeping out? I mean, are we, you know, I don't know. Right. And everybody now has to have some kind of presence on social media. Uh, And that seems to be increasingly true. One of the things I've noticed about people is technology only tends to go in one direction. It doesn't tend to go backwards unless there is some kind of Armageddon, which, you know, we know with climate change. Mm-hmm. I mean, 40 well, years, who knows? Right. But Well, let me ask you about that specific point, because we're experiencing it feels like at least a little mini backlash toward our reliance on technology. It feels like, you know, parents, candidly, more affluent parents are starting to ask questions about how much time is my kid spending on social media, on their device? How much time are we all spending uh, on our devices? Is that just a moment that will pass in this sort of inexorable march toward us sort of chipifying ourselves? Probably. Yeah. I, I, I mean, you know, it's interesting because people always look back in time and feel that somehow things were better. Right. But we have to remember that, you know, 50, 60 years ago in this country, being rich or being well off meant like one and a half bathrooms for a family of five or six. And, you know, you look at the cell phone. I mean, if it weren't for really the phones that we are all using, technology probably wouldn't have taken such a big leap you know, with the social media. Right. Now we've got it in our hands. So what's going to happen when it's... And to your point, it's not just technology that's social media and, you know, computers and that kind of thing. It's also freezing your eggs. And we are going to be, you know, probably the wealthy will be able to reproduce in a different way. Mm-hmm. And we, I think we see more and more people are using surrogates and you know choosing you know in some ways choosing the attributes of their children and 
if people have money, they will, and these things are available, people will avail themselves of them. I mean, plastic surgery is a perfect example. That's something that it's only increased. Yeah. And it's it's interesting to me. For those who can afford it. For those who can afford it. But also, it's something that's also, uh, you know, you can also put it on a credit card. That's true. So that more, more has more made it, talk about it much, yeah. much more widely affordable to people. So if people can improve themselves in some way or get a leg up, they tend to do that. So let me ask you and take you back to something you said earlier, which I think is such a fascinating point, that the economy and feminism are correlated. Look around the, at the economy right now. By many accounts, it's booming from a consumer perspective, and yet we talk about it every day. There are sort of clouds looming on the horizon. Synthesize right. that with Me Too, Time's Up, this moment that we seem to be having questioning a lot of the existing power structure. Yes. How does the economy figure into what happens next for women and for feminism? Well, one of the things that I noticed was in 2000, you know, before 2008, that felt like about a hundred steps back from feminism. And I just remember how shocked I felt. Now, of course, those young women are in their 30s, 40s, maybe they're a, a little bit younger, but it was the time of Bridezillas. Mm-hmm. It was a time where there was, I mean, consumerism really felt like it took off then. It was also a time of we loosened the debts, debt requirements. Right. So uh, people are spending, spending money, and you know, they're thinking they're going to have kids and they're putting the kids in designer clothes and it's we see all this with the celebrities and how many women, actresses, stood up in those times and said, I'm not a feminist. Really shameful. Right. And then the crash comes and there's a real change. Um, You know, I think... There's so many industries that haven't recovered from that change. I mean, yes, people are working, but, you know, if you are, it feels like there are more women in more powerful positions. I think it was pivotal, 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 excuse me, because I think a lot of financial jobs were lost, which were predominantly men. Mm-hmm. And I saw, personally, a lot of women who kept their jobs and then became the sole supporter of their families. Yes. And, and I really saw role reversals happening at that era. Yes. I mean, that is something that I tried to capture in my book, Lipstick Jungle. Yeah. This idea right. of the role reversal, where I see more and more women are the breadwinners in the family. And that's always been true for lower income women. For lower income women, it might be as high as 30, might be as high as 40%. And, you know, for upper income women, it was 20%. Now maybe it's 35%. But that's something that is inching up along with less marriage and more single people. And in a sense, that's, that's 
it's going to be the future for a lot of people. I feel like we'd be remiss because, first of all, I feel like you should have another column. (laughs) <laughs> because of what you're talking about. But I want to talk about Sex in the City just before we go because it was such a phenomenon. It really was. It became a part of, I always talk about cultural literacy, and I feel like that kind of changed and marked an era uh, for so many of us. It was the reason I first bought my first pair of Jimmy Choo's, to be quite honest. But talk to me about how surprised you were by what a hit it became and how much kind of it became a part of kind of our fabric of society, certainly for women, for many women. Well, the crazy thing is, ever since I was a kid, I always felt like I've got to do something big. I've got to do something big. Something's going to happen and something big is going to happen. And that ridiculous belief is really what kept me going until I started writing the column Sex in the City because I really I was making very, very little money. Right. I could support myself I could pay my rent. Um, And then my big goal when I was writing Sex in the City was really just to get a column because I wanted to have some kind of regular income. And this was something I'd been working towards for probably five years and had had versions of early versions of Sex in the City. Uh, So when I got the column, I knew exactly what to do with it. Mm -hmm. And I did know that it was my big break. It was turned into a book and that was absolutely fabulous because at that time all I wanted to do was publish a book. I knew that I couldn't, you know, journalism has a shelf life and at some point you really have to transition to writing books. So that was a huge break for me. And then Darren's, but when I was writing it, there was a lot of interest from TV and movies which I did not take seriously because at that time, you know, friends I had who'd had books turned into movies, it was, it was just considered, like, not literary. Um, being on the bestseller list, believe it or not, was not a goal. Uh, you know, that was considered a little crass. And, and the idea of Sex and the City being a TV show was... I have to tell you, nobody was impressed. Hmm. Um, nobody imagine, watched right? TV. I mean, it's, yeah, you yeah. have to remember, this is HBO was just getting started. Right. Right. Now, ABC was very interested, but Darren did not want to go to network. I didn't want to go to network because HBO was here in New York. We knew them. Um, you could push uh, you the know, envelope a little and, bit, And you right? also had to remember that before Sex in the City, I was working with Bravo. I had a TV show. Right. called Sex, Lies, and Video Clips. So for me, the TV series was like another thing in a list of things that I had going on. I think I was also probably writing a screenplay. So I had a lot yeah. that was going on that was all new. And, and so the show was exciting, but it was really... HBO kept it on and it just ended up like getting a bigger and bigger audience and becoming a phenomenon. I mean, it, they never told us the numbers. Apparently the numbers were really pretty big out of the gate, but they never told, they never told Darren Star that. Right. So we literally power had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. We had no idea. And people in New York didn't really watch that much TV. So, but then the it rest started. The country did, and that was and it, part of it, right? I mean, yes. it it sort of democratized in many ways 
the ideas and uh, validated a lot of feelings maybe that people were having that well you know no what that was for. also a time thanks to the internet where all of the creativity of New York that had really been contained right. in this pretty small group of artists and fashion designers and and yeah. fashion magazines and writing and you know art that was a pretty small group because of the internet it all exploded really out there into the ether and that's what it was a combination of those two things that I think really made it so big. You know, New York yeah. was, in the early 90s, nobody wanted to go to New York. And after that, everybody wanted to come to New York. It felt like it was a love letter to yeah, New York in many ways, which was really cool. This new book, you're older, dealing with dating again. Yes, but also a lot of other things. I mean, yeah, there I is really a lot of other call things. it the new middle age. and. And I mean, this to me is so zeitgeist um, because we're all, you know, we are all in this time when we're getting older and dealing with lots of different issues. Right. Yeah. Whether right. it's parents, whether it's it's parents, relationships but it's also not yourself, working. Yourself, you know, yeah. it's emotionally, and I find that this it's this time of readjustment for men and women. And there's something I call middle-aged madness. I see men going going through it too. I've seen 55-year-old men move back to their mother's house. Mm. Wow. See, this well, is why. sounds like we have another episode <laughs> uh, to do of this. Is there still sex in the city? It's the new book, Candace Bushnell. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. And that was Candace Bushnell, her new book out, Is There Still Sex in the City? She's written many books. And, of course, we know about the HBO series, the movies. But she really took us to some very interesting places. Loved that conversation. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business Week Extra. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 